we've got a lot to get into this week, starting with the massive going-ons that is the college football playoff rankings that just got released. It was a massive deal that Florida State, so first off, the rankings start with Michigan is number one. Washington Huskies are number two. Texas is number three. And Alabama is coming in at number four. Now, a lot of people are upset that Alabama made it in over Florida State. But as it stands, Michigan will play Alabama in the Rose Bowl at 5 on January 1st, and Washington will play Texas in the Sugar Bowl at 8.45. So, the debate over Florida State and Alabama. Florida State, they were 13-0, and they were the ACC champs. Now, all of the four teams that did make the playoffs, they all won the championships of their division. Michigan was 13-0, Big Ten champs. Washington, 13-0, Pac-12 champs. Texas was 12-1, and and they were the Big 12 champs, and Alabama was 12-1 and as SEC champions. Now, FSU not making it makes them the first time that an undefeated champion of a Power 5 conference has not made the college football playoffs since they've been doing the playoff format they have for about 10 years now. So the reason... The main reason Florida State did not make it into the playoffs is because their starting quarterback, Jordan Davis, got a non-disclosed injury after getting tackled in the game against North Alabama on November 18th, and he's out for at least three to four months. And that is crucial when it comes to what the college football playoff committee looks at when they do make that decision. They look at conference championships, strength of schedule, head-to-head results against common opponents, head-to-head matchups if they happen. They look at the current injury statuses of current players, all based on who the best four teams are in college football. Now, the reason I think that this is so controversial is because a lot of times the committee is very indecisive on if they're looking for who the best four teams are or who has the best four resumes because those are not always the same. Last year, it was a big black mark on the college football selection committee that TCU made it into the playoffs and got absolutely trounced by Georgia in the national championship. So for them to double down on that, at the end of the day, it's a business. They are in the business of what games will be the most exciting, get people talking the most, and get them the most revenue, get the most eyes on the game, all that stuff. And as deserving, I feel awful for Florida State. They had a great season, undefeated, won their division. They did all you can ask them to do. And they can't help that their quarterback got injured. That's just unfortunate. And that's the way it goes sometimes. But that's just life. And I think the committee made the right call. The SEC is the strongest, in my opinion. If you think 
the Big Ten's better, at the very least, the second strongest conference in college football. Therefore, in my view, the SEC champion should be in the playoffs. Full stop. Now, if Florida State still had their starting quarterback, I think there's a much more compelling argument they make it in. And I think they probably do make it in over Alabama if Jordan Davis was still on the team. But he's not. And that the Florida State team that the college football playoff committee had to look at if they should be considered a top four team is the Florida State team that barely beat Louisville yesterday in the ACC championship game and the Florida State team that barely made it past a horrible Florida team last week. That's not the same Florida State team that went 11-0 before Jordan Davis got hurt. And it is to their credit to show how good of a team they are that they were able to get by and win those last two games without their starting quarterback. But just because you can admire their grit does not mean that you should waste a playoff spot on a team that's clearly not going to win. And it's just the inconsistency of the committee that makes it such a hard thing for a lot of fans to swallow. Because clearly last year, when it came down to TCU, they were valuing TCU's resume over whether or not they were a better team than Alabama. Because clearly, if Alabama played TCU last year, TCU would get crushed, just like they got crushed by Georgia in the national championship. Now, I don't think the Alabama team was as good as Georgia or would have crushed TCU like Georgia did, but Bama was clearly a better team if they would have played head-to-head than TCU. So I don't think the committee wanted to have a situation like that unfold again, And unfortunately, Florida State ended up getting the shaft because of it. Now, nobody's talking about this, but honestly, if we're just picking the best four teams, I don't think Washington should have made it. In my opinion, the best four teams in college football right now are Michigan, Texas, Bama, and Georgia. And that would have made for an incredible playoff. But people are putting the committee over the coals right now for leaving out Florida State, there's no way they could have left out Florida State and Washington without people going absolutely ballistic. And luckily, this is the last year we have to deal with this nonsense about selection committees and having some formula that nobody else knows about to determine who makes the playoffs. Because next year, the college football playoffs are expanding to 12 teams instead of four and honestly, I'm not a big fan of that either. I think it should have expanded to eight teams because the longer the playoffs go on, the greater the risk of injury is. And you would hate to see somebody on a first or second seeded team get put out playing against a team that clearly has no shot at actually winning the national championship. But I would much rather prefer a 12-team playoff than a 14 playoff because I think it's a lot better that a lot of undeserving teams make the playoffs than under deserving teams not making the playoffs. It's sort of like how in the law, a lot of people have the philosophy that it's better to let 10 guilty per- persons go free than to punish one innocent person. 
Now, whether you agree with that or not is beside the point. I think that philosophy also can be extended to college football, for what that's worth. Now, a lot of people that are arguing that Bama shouldn't have made playoffs over Florida State are talking about how in 2014, Ohio State made the playoffs without their starting quarterback in the lineup. And because that happened in 2017, Bama, there have been a couple of teams that made playoffs without their starting quarterback. And I don't think it's necessarily the fact that their quarterback was out. It's how they played without their quarterback. Because that Florida State team did not look like a top four team in the country these last two weeks. And they had a struggle win against Louisville last night. It was ugly. The final score does not reflect how close the game actually was. And I think that win psyched out the committee. If Florida State would have been dominant yesterday, I think they're in the playoffs today. But they weren't, and they're not, plain and simple. And to everybody who's really upset about the Florida State snub right now, you got to ask yourself this. Do you think they're going to be Georgia in the Orange Bowl? Because if you don't think they're going to be Georgia in the Orange Bowl, then why should they be in the college football playoffs? Because personally, I would much rather watch them get ran through by a sixth seed in the Orange Bowl than waste spot in the playoffs and prevent us from getting some good, exciting, gritty football. It sucks for the players. It sucks for the staff. But to me, it's the right call because I think it should be about who are the four best teams and not what are the four best resumes. Now, as for how Alabama got to this point, let's talk about the SEC championship from yesterday. Alabama beat Georgia 27-24 to in what was an absolute nail-biter of the game. Now, before the game, I posted on social media what I thought the keys to victory were for both teams. For Georgia, I said they had to get the defense started right away, which they did. They had to make Milrow run, which they did. And they had to force Bama into committing penalties, which they did not do. And for Alabama, I said they had to let Milrow get into a passing group early, which he absolutely did not do. They had to be disciplined and not commit unforced penalties, which this was by far the most disciplined game Alabama has played all season. And kudos to Nick Saban for being able to get the team to, to play with that level of reserve. And kudos to the team for being able to do it. And number three, don't let Georgia dominate the time of possession or tempo of the game, which Alabama absolutely did. At the end of the game, Alabama possessed the ball for 31 minutes compared to Georgia's 28, which was by far the most impressive showing this season of a team making Georgia play to them and not the other way around. So both teams are able to execute on two out of three of what I thought their keys to victory were. Now, the crucial part, it all came down to Jalen Milrow. He was the MVP yesterday, rightfully so. And it was just the most Jalen Milrow game ever, to be completely honest. He did absolutely pitiful from passing perspective, but he did great at running. And 
it is what it is. I did not think if you were to put on a performance like that, Alabama would be able to win. I thought for them to win, he had to be a dual threat, and he proved me wrong. Barely, but surely he proved me wrong. Now, going back to penalties for a second, I said this was the most impressive showing from Alabama from a lack of penalty standpoint. Georgia committed five penalties and lost 56 yards because of it. Alabama committed three and lost 36 yards. So both teams did really well as far as not committing penalties, not letting that impact the game that much. That being said, though, Georgia played a lot sloppier than Alabama, and their penalties came relatively crucial moments in the game that did not help their case. So the way it got started, Alabama, I think, got up to a 3 to nothing lead start. Georgia got a touchdown, 7-3. to Alabama got another touchdown, 10-7, to th- seven, or 10-3. to three. You know, 10-7. And then the second half was kind of slower, picked up in the fourth quarter. For the most part, it was a very gritty, grind-out type of game. And it just came down to a lot of minor, like, nitpicky things that made the difference. Because, honestly, both teams didn't really play that great. Alabama's throwing game was absolutely atrocious. There were, and Jalen Milrow almost threw a pick the first play of the game. And there were so many points throughout the game where he was either throwing horrible passes to clearly wide open receivers, or he was actually hitting the receiver and they were just dropping it for no real reason. And if it wasn't for that, I think Alabama should have won that game by a lot more than three points. Because so many of those opportunities where there were critical drops or bad passes were plays that really could have made a difference as far as the Alabama down the field. And I, he threw 13 of 23 for as far as his completion rate, and he only threw for 192 yards compared to Carson Beck, who only missed like six passes and threw for like 230-something or maybe even 60-something yards. Like Carson Beck had a really good performance yesterday. It just didn't amount to anything. And it wasn't just the Alabama receivers that couldn't catch, though. There were at least four opportunities that I saw where Alabama could have gotten a critical interception that would have just once again made it not even a close game, but they just couldn't bring the ball down. And you hate to see it. I mean, I would have loved if we could have converted on all the opportunities we messed up on, but we converted on the ones that counted. And Georgia didn't convert when it counted, and we got the win. But the biggest controversy coming out of the game is a catch from Isaiah Bond at the end of the second quarter. So Jalen Miller threw a 22-yard pass to Isaiah Bond, and Bond got a hold of it, and Alabama ended up getting a touchdown on the drive. So the controversy here is that when Miller threw the pass, Bond caught it, He's in the air. He clearly has possession of the ball. Then he hits the ground, and he sort of hits it on his side. And when he hits, there's a quick moment where it looks like the ball pops out for a second. And that one little still shot where it looks like the ball has popped out has been going viral on social media. Everybody's talking about it, Twitter, Facebook. Like That's the play that Georgia fans are upset about. 
and they're upset for two reasons. One, that it was called a catch in the first place because they thought it was a miscast, and they thought it was crafting, that he used the ground to make it look like he caught it. And two, that there was no replay. So the way replay works in college football is there's a controversial play. They have to be really quick to throw down a challenge or to either an opposing coach who doesn't like the play can call for a challenge or the review committee can tell the referee they need a challenge. And Alabama clearly thought that there was a dispute on the play because they snapped the ball very quickly afterwards to kill any chance that a challenge could come. So any chance you have to challenge a play goes away the second the next snap commits. And so Alabama, knowing that, was very quick once the play got called in their favor to get the next play going before people had a chance to think about what just happened. Because when they first showed the replay, like when it happened in real time, I didn't see how there was any dispute. And people asked Kirby Smart after the game why he didn't challenge the play. And he said that sort of along the same lines, when he first saw it happen, he didn't realize what people saw when we saw the replay later, that quick moment where maybe the ball popped out. And he said he didn't want to waste a timeout and a challenge on a play that he very well thought could still come out against him even if there was a replay. And he was of the mindset that it's a championship game. It's a long game. That play happened in the first half that he was going to sit on a timeout and a challenge because he might need it later, and he didn't want to waste it so early. And I don't blame him for that. Honestly, I think it was a catch. I think even the still shot where it looks like the ball popped out, Isaiah Bond clearly still has his bottom hand wrapped around the football. And at no point does it ever, at least to me, look like he just lost control of the ball. Now, I do think that the officials should have reviewed the play. I don't think Kirby should have had to been the one to issue the challenge. I think it was close enough where they should have challenged it. But I also respect Bama's hustle for realizing that and being quick to get that snap off before the officials could realize what they just let happen. So I don't think the play should be as controversial as people are making it, it out to be because one, I do think it was a catch. But two, even if even if it wasn't, that play happened in the second quarter. There were still a whole half left of football to be played. Now, the play being called a pass, Alabama did get a touchdown on that drive. So people were upset saying if they would have not called that pass, Bam wouldn't have got the touchdown. Maybe so. But Georgia had plenty of time to correct that mistake and also had plenty of calls go their way as well. There, so at the end of the day, you can't blame the game on a play that happened in the second quarter when you had plenty of time to make up for that error. Now, when I talk about plays that went against Alabama and in Georgia's favor that were wrongly decided, I'm mainly talking about one play in, I believe, the third quarter where Jalen Milrow got tackled, but except his knee didn't hit the ground, and I don't think he got tackled. 
So they tried to sack Milrow, and they hit him so hard that the defensive back that tackled him ended up twisting in air, and his back hit the ground, and Milrow was on top of him, and Milrow flipped over him without his knees ever hitting the ground, and he realized what had happened. He kept running, and he broke off down the field, and he got what would have been a first down and potentially would have continued to run to get a touchdown until they called the play dead. And they ruled him down, and I don't think he was, but either way, that was a very big play that if he would have been able to rush down the field and get a touchdown, if they would have ruled him not down, then that would have been a game-changer, too, for Alabama's favor that just didn't go their way. So I think, in my view, those two plays cancel each other out. And also, Georgia, as much as Alabama could have beaten Georgia by a lot more if they would have been playing as efficient as they could have, and as much as they did play a really good game as far as controlling the ball, defense did good, Georgia had a lot of the blame for that loss as well. There were two big moments that if Georgia had just managed to convert then they would be the SEC champions right now, and likely the number one seed in the playoffs. And that is a missed field goal in the first quarter, and a careless, careless fumble at the 10-yard line that Alabama was able to recover and get a field goal out of that recovery. Now, going back to Alabama not taking advantage of some opportunities, they should have got a touchdown out of that. The fact that they got the ball at the 10-yard line and weren't able to get a touchdown out of it shows, one, how good Alabama's or Georgia's defense is, and two, how bad Alabama's receiving core can be sometimes, or Jay Milrose passing, whatever you want to blame it on. But they ended up settling for a field goal and it converted. So if Georgia hits their field goal and doesn't give Alabama an easy field goal opportunity like that, it's a completely different ball game, regardless of if Isaiah Bond's catch goes through or not. And that fumble was just so, so silly. I mean, it was just a matter of a handoff, somebody not being ready for it, and they just dropped it. And Alabama was able to get a hold of it. So, Georgia has had a great run these last two seasons. I mean, a 29-game win streak, two national championships. It's up there as one of the greatest runs in college football history. But this season, they did not have the air of a national championship team. Now, I'm not going to pretend like I thought they were going to lose yesterday. I have too many on-the-record predictions to pretend like anything else happened. But I have also gone on the record this season and said that they feel they felt vulnerable this season. They had a lot of close games against opponents like Auburn and USC that shouldn't have been close games. And they just did not feel as dominant when you watched them play as their record suggested they were. Now, hopefully, if you're a Georgia fan, this loss to Alabama will light a fire underneath them and they'll come out with renewed vigor. But until then, it appears that UGA has not quite exercised the demon of Nick Saban. Now, on the note of Nick Saban, there are two people in particular 
that have been going viral on Twitter because of their takes. One is last year, I believe his name is David Polak, said something to Nick Saban's face about Kirby Smart and Georgia being the future of college football. And that clip has resurfaced and gone viral as sort of like in the vein of after the last dance, all those Michael Jordan and I took that personally memes of people just roughing it in David Polak's face. Now he's gone on Twitter since the game ended last night, and he said that Alabama beat Georgia, Georgia beat Georgia, and all sorts of things like that. But I think it just shows that Nick Saban, a lot of people this season, especially after the loss to Texas, were talking about how the dynasties were and Saban's era is gone. The Kirby Smart era has begun. And Saban and Alabama proved yesterday that their sun has not set on the dynasty just yet. There's still hope for a national championship and that even after two national championships and a 29-game win streak, Saban can still pull one over on old Kirby. And for what it's worth, who was the last team to beat Georgia before yesterday? Alabama. I actually, I was, I didn't look it up before starting the podcast, but I would love to know, not counting Alabama, what Georgia's ministry was, because that first national championship season, the loss to Alabama was the only loss that Georgia had that season. So without Alabama, they've been undefeated for three years. And, you know, I mean, hey, that 2021 national championship, or 2022, 2021 season, the national championship was in 2022. I hate how that always works out because it always throws my ears off. But a lot of people were celebrating, saying Georgia exercised this Alabama Nick Saban demons and maybe pump the brakes on that. I think that the Georgia-Alabama rivalry has been the best thing in college football these last five, maybe even more years. And it'll be a lot more exciting once the SEC division lines are done away with next year. And we can see maybe them play more often. You know, I've always said it's a shame that Alabama's two SEC East teams every year are Auburn and Tennessee. And maybe it's because I was not an Alabama fan my entire life. Just once I started going to school there, I don't have the ingrained Tennessee uh, hatred a lot of Alabama fans do, but I would much rather watch Tennessee play somebody else and Georgia and Alabama play every year. I think that would be a lot more of an exciting rivalry than Alabama-Tennessee, but it is what it is. I hope that next year we can play Georgia a lot more often, and it will be a lot of fun. I'm also excited to see how Texas and Oklahoma coming into SEC shapes things up. I think if Alabama does get put out by Michigan in the first round, you're going to see me put on my uh, Texas Longhorns shirt and go horned up because if Alabama doesn't win, I would love if somehow we could get the incumbent national champions joining the SEC. I think that makes for a lot more of a compelling narrative than if Washington or Michigan win the national championship. But that being said, it's going to be the deciding playoff. And the other 
uh, analyst aside from Dave Polak, who was going in on Nick Saban in Alabama, was Booger McFarland. He was a part of the ESPN show announcing who the national championship competitors would be. And after it was revealed that Alabama made it over FSU, he was just beside himself. He was calling it a travesty, talking about how a team that's undefeated and won their conference should never be chosen or should never not make the playoffs over a team with one loss. And at the end of the day, I can agree with where he's coming from, but he was just so over the top with his analysis that I think it really just showed how biased he was. Because you can disagree with the decision, but to call it a travesty, I've seen people say that it denigrates the entire college football system, that it ruins any legitimacy that the committee has, all this stuff. And I can get being unhappy with the decision, but to act like you don't understand what they were coming, where they were coming from, it's just silly. And to me, it's just overly biased. And it also, I guess, just depends on what you think the criteria should be. And it's a knock against the college football playoff committee that after a decade, they still haven't clearly defined what the criteria are. I believe they do it on purpose so they don't have to tie themselves down to one potential method of interpretation over the other. It always comes down to the resume. Is it the best team? Honestly, I think, and I've said this before on the podcast, this is my last time saying it. I hope I could get incited again to make this point. But at the end of the day, forget the crappy games against the Middle Tennessees and like people like that, the Austin Peas of the world. Each conference should the season should be you play every other team in your conference and whoever the top two teams are play in the conference championship and the winners of every conference championship go play in the playoffs. End of the end of story. That's clear cut. Everybody knows what the rules are. There's no room for well, somebody had a better record, but this and that. If injuries happen, so be it. Like, it's just so much easier and so much less hand-wringing and unclear criteria, things like that. And it makes all the conferences mean more because at the end of the day, if you're not a Power 5 team, what do you what do you play for? You're playing for your conference championship, and that's it. Now, I know a lot of the reason they do those crappy games like Alabama versus Middle Tennessee or – FSU versus Northern Alabama is because it gets a lot of money to those smaller schools and it helps them get attention and things like that. I think that there are other ways that that could be done, maybe scrimmages, things like that. But as far as just a competitive college football landscape, I would love it if Alabama or Georgia or whoever had to play every team in the SEC to make the playoff. Like, that just makes sense. It makes the conferences mean more. What's the point of the SEC if you only play half of the conference? I mean, it's just silly. It's not the most efficient way you can do it. I like my way a lot better. If anybody has any 
better alternatives. I would love to hear them, send them my way. But it is what it is for now. I'm excited to see how the 12-team playoff format works next year. And I'm happy with how the weekend turned out, though I understand why others are not. Now, with that being said, we've got to change the subject to the Redneck Brawl 4, which is happening this weekend. I uh, have a cousin named Sam Malone who will be joining us here in a few moments who is fighting in the Redneck Brawl, and we will let him tell us all about it. Calling him right now. Can't wait to see what he has to say. What's up, Sam? What's up? How you doing? Doing good, man. Can't wait to hear all about the Redneck Brawl. So tell us about it. What? How long has it been around? What have your training methods been? Who are you fighting? Let's hear it. So um, basically, this is the fourth one, I believe. It started out in West Virginia. It's about as professional. It's about as unprofessional as professional as you can get. Um, I, I've just been basically been going to the Octopus Gym uh, training. I'm training with the main event up there. He's a uh, my name is Man Bear Pig. He's fighting for Shizat the Rizat. Okay, Man Bear Pig, that's a good South Park reference for those of you who've never seen the show. Hilarious. Yeah, I'm going about the deadly diabetic. So how did you pick your ring name? Did you, I know obviously you have diabetes. Was that simple as that? Whose idea was it? Yeah, that a way to make a weakness into a strength right there. Own it. Not that diabetes is a weakness per se, but you know it's an illness. That a way to put it, wear it on your chest. <laughs> no, I can't say I know of any. Now, who are you fighting? Um, I'm sure he's gonna have a lot to say after the national champ or the SEC championship game yesterday. Now, has he had any fights in any of the past Redneck Brawls? Like, have you seen any of his tapes? What's he about? I mean, I've just been mainly watching every video of the Redneck Brawler is and see because, I mean, most of these guys, they're not going to come out fighting like normal fighters. Yeah. So they're going to come out full rush and they're going to be gassed after a minute. So my tactic first round is just to see basically what he's going to be doing. I'm going to basically see what he's going to do to kill it out. If he comes rushing me, um, I'm just going to try to keep on the, keep on the keep distance and just piece him up. And, um, yeah, I mean, he has a good strategy. No point in expending energy when you don't have to. Let them come to you. How many? It's a three round, one minute round each, right? That's the format. Yeah, yeah that's it. Uh, the, I, I believe the main event's a little different, but the, mm -hmm. I, I fight three, three, one minute rounds. There you go. I mean, hey, three minutes of fighting, that seems like something that you have plenty of experience doing. <laughs> you, for sure. For sure. It, it, it takes 
a lot more out of you. Like the average person can't go in there and hike three minutes at full speed and not not get messed up. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even just the cardio it takes. Anybody listening to this right now, if you have any type of boxing glove, boxing bag, whatever, just go punch it for three minutes straight and tell me if you can make it the full three minutes because I've done that exercise before, and after about one minute, your arms just feel like pudding. Like, it's very, very hard. Now, what kind of training have you been doing at the Octopus Gym? Just a bunch of cardio Holes, like what have you been working on? Well, um, mainly uh, during the week, it's been more of a cardio. We, we still spar pretty much every day, but sun- Sundays have been the real, the real practices. The real, like sparring, like the worst. Like we, we, I've been, I've been training with some pretty legit guys. I, like I, I've been getting picked up by. Um, I think they have two or three fighters in the PFL. Oh, I believe I've seen some of the Snapchats you posted. It looks like the training's pretty brutal. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I knocked the guy out a couple Sundays ago. I mean, I was only throwing like 50% and knocked him out for like 30 seconds, and nobody even stopped sparring as off me. <laughs> like, nobody even checked on him. I was like, all right, let's go take a break and get some water, man. Like, yeah, dude, that's, I mean, sport for sure. absolutely. Do you have any, uh, I guess, Specialty moves like are you more of a hook person? You like a good jab? Like what's your if you're gonna knock somebody out? What's your move? Well, I, I got a good jab. That's not really gonna knock them out. Um, yeah. It's either gonna be my right cross or it's gonna be a jab into a right body body shot. That right body shot my strongest my strongest shot. So the first round. I'm thinking he's going to be covering his head, so I'm going to jab and then give him the body a few times, do a couple combos, and then I'm going to go do that same combo again, jab, and then I've got this, it's, it's almost like an overhand, you feel like you're throwing a body shot, and then like at the very last second, you kind of like throw it up, and it comes mm-hmm. through your head, they're going, to, they're going to start to drop once they get that body. Oh, absolutely. I mean, hey, plus two, if you target the body, obviously it's only a three-minute fight, but... If you can land some good body blows, it makes it harder to get the hands up to protect the face, and you can just have a field day. Exactly. So. It's all, all it, it, it's a chess game. I mean, a lot of those guys are going to go in there trying to get mad, which I, I'm sure I'll have a little bit of anger with me, but you got to learn to control it. You can't just, oh, I'm going to be red. Like, you can't see red. Like, that's when you get out of Mm-hmm. Right, emotion never tends to bode well in a fight. You got to be able to be calm, collected, adjust in the moment, all sorts of different stuff. Like you said, it's a chess game, and I'm excited to see it. You have you have a corner, right? Like I know Hunter, one of our good buddies. Is he still in the corner? Who all is going to be helping you? It's, well, it's mainly going to be Hunter. They uh, they provide a corner, corner doctor like man to make sure like I get so legit and and whatnot. But I'm, I'm going to be listening to Hunter. Um, I mean, I've known him for a good, good while, and he ain't, he ain't no sloppy boxing. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, heck, if he hadn't messed up his arm, I have a good feeling he'd probably be right there in the redneck brawl, too. And if he wouldn't, he should be. Now, the forum that they're doing the fight in, it's a pretty big arena, right? Uh, yes, I, I, think, I believe it holds. 
football games. I think it's at 2,500, but I think for like concerts and stuff like the boxing event, I believe it's around 3,500, 3,500 people, which is, I mean, that's a pretty big amount of people to be fighting for your first actual box match. Absolutely. Are you worried about getting the jitters at all, or is it just another day at the office? Well, I mean, obviously everybody's going to be a little bit nervous before we go in. Um, but, I mean, I, I, I pulled off to the very high level back in high school. So, I mean, I'm, it's not like I'm afraid of performing in front of people, but I feel like 3,000 is like going to be a little bit different. I feel like, that, I feel like it's going to be it's energetic. I don't feel like it's going to make me nervous, but I think it's going to bring, bring my energy up. That's a good mindset to have. I'm excited to see the fight. You got any last words you want to make known before uh, we end it up? Not that I can think of. Just tune in whenever not for a knockout. Sounds good. Well, all right, man. Uh, you know, we're going to try to do a post-fight interview with Sam, see how it goes. But... Everybody check out the Redneck Brawl this weekend, and we wish you nothing but the best. Appreciate it, man. All right, we'll catch you. So, the Redneck Brawl, go check it out on Instagram. Uh, I believe they have a Twitter as well. They've got some hilarious videos, a lot of trash talk, very not safe for work, but entertaining at the same time. So, if you got some free time on your hands, check it out. Now... Going from boxing to redneck boxing to pro wrestling, CM Punk made his big return to Monday Night Raw this week, and he really said a whole lot of nothing. Anybody who was hoping to tune in to see what's he here for, who's his first program going to be with, all of this, you know, questions that were circulating after he made his big return in Survivor Series on Saturday weren't really uh, given much to go off of. Seth Rollins, it appears, is going to be who CM Punk's first rivalry is with, just based on his reaction on Monday. He got a lot of CM Punk chants when he came out. He called CM Punk a hypocrite. Didn't say why, but for people like us who follow very closely, most likely what he was referring to is all of the Trash talk CM Punk has sent WWE's way over the last 10 years since he walked out about how horrible the company is, how he disagrees with their creative process, what have you, for him to now come back and be a part of it is hypocritical in the eyes of Seth Rollins and many people on social media. So Seth Rollins was going to CM Punk on Monday, but CM Punk didn't really have a whole lot to say. He referenced his famous pipe bomb promo from 2011. And the Nashville crowd honestly wasn't as excited to see CM Punk as thought they would be. There were a lot of big moments in his promo that were clearly meant to get a big pop from the crowd and just kind of fell flat. Like he was referencing the pipe bomb and he clearly thought that more of the audience would have gotten those references but didn't really get the reaction. I mean, a lot of it has to do with the fact that it has been 10 years since he showed up, and a lot of the people that were probably at that show were children when CM Punk made that promo and was last in WWE. As crazy as it may seem, 
2011 was basically 13 years ago. So uh, if you're an 18-year-old now, you were five years old when CM Punk made that promo. Like, it's wild that time flies that quickly, but a lot of the WWE's audience over the last 15 years, especially ever since they switched to being TVPG, are children. <laughs> They're younger people. It's not like it used to be back in the 90s or even the early 2000s where there was a lot of cussing and bleeding and hardcore matches. Like they've toned down a lot of the violence, a lot of the edginess to target a more family-friendly demographic. And one of the side effects of that is a lot of people aren't really going to be invested in the long-term stories that you know you would like as much as you would like them to be. So because of that, the promo didn't really hit as much as I would have liked for two as I'm sure CM Punk expected it to. But it'll be more interesting to see what they do in the weeks to come. I mean, this week, the story was going to be about CM Punk just being there in the first place. So now that they've got his first time back in the ring out of the way, it's where do we go from here? And I'm expecting next week to start to build up to who he's going to be fighting, all that kind of stuff. Now, the big money line from his promo that occurred right as the show was going off the air, CM Punk said, I'm not here to make money, or I'm here to make money, not make friends. And that was clearly a reference to all the backstage drama he had about himself in AEW, his feuds with the executive vice presidents, you know, the Young Bucks, Kenny Omega, people like that. And they were kind of, you know, calling back to that by talking about how, look, I was all about the money in AEW. I didn't care about making friends with people in the locker room. And I'm going to keep that same energy here in WWE. Now, it has been said, and it has yet to be confirmed, but the speculation is that CM Punk has a behavioral clause in his contract. So if the backstage issues that he had in AEW continue to surround him in his new WWE environment, they can very quickly pull the plug and cancel his contract, I believe, or at the very least give him some heavy, heavy fines. So don't expect to see a lot of the backstage drama around CM Punk now that he has that clause in his contract like it was back in AEW. So, that being said, I think that's a wrap for this week's episode. The college football playoffs have been finalized, and I will wait till closer to time to give those official predictions. But until then, if you're upset about how the playoff rankings turned out, deep breath. It's all okay. It, unless you're a Florida State fan, then I'm – I mean, even if you're a Florida State fan, I think that it's much better to be able to be the martyr, wear the victim hat, and complain about, ah, oh, it sucks, like everybody sympathizes with you. If they would have let us in the playoffs that like we deserve it, then to have made the playoffs and got completely demolished and then people look at you like you're TCU from last year and ask, why do we waste a spot? So now they don't have to go through that embarrassment. They can be the sympathetic team that they are, 
And we'll see how they do against Georgia. I don't expect that game to go well for them. Like I said, I would much rather see them get beat by Georgia in a basically meaningless game than waste a spot in the playoffs. But we'll see how it turns out for them. I'm excited for what Alabama showed this weekend. I hope they can work on their receiving core and, you know, maybe be a lot better against Michigan than they were against Georgia. But that SEC championship game was great. That Michigan win was great. Didn't talk about it a lot, but they just completely stopped Iowa. And I'm excited to see what the next couple of weeks hold for college football. And I will see you all next time.